Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week. And before we set out into this book, if you're still listening, first of all, thank you. After you've seen the title of this one, it's not everybody's (laughs) favorite book of the Bible probably. Not one that you have a lot of verses memorized from. And this is not a Scottish culinary dish. Yeah. That's haggis. Yeah, this is, a, this is a book that chances are, unless you've been ultra serious about your Bible reading plan, you haven't been within two or three books of this book in a long time. <laughs> it is the book of Haggai nestled into the end of the Old Testament. And I'd just like to remind everybody listening that one of the things we're trying to do on the podcast is do an overview of every book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is is not because we necessarily have something I think all that profound to say about every book of the Bible, but because every book of the Bible is the inspired word of God. And, you know, our goal at So We Speak is to think Christianly about the world. We say to be informed without being conformed. And if you're going to do that, the only way to do it is to have regular time in the word. You have to be formed by the Bible. That means every page of the Bible, not just our favorite spots that we go right. to over and over, which we all have a tendency to do. And so the reason we want to do these book overview podcasts is because we really want the people who listen to this podcast to be able to plop down anywhere in the Bible and be able to apply it to their life. And books like Haggai present a very difficult uh, challenge for mm-hmm. a lot of people, for us, as we've been prepping for this podcast, mm-hmm. to make sure that we understand the right amount of background information. And I will say, I think Haggai, more than any of the other prophets, is obscure in the way that he explains things, which we'll get into in right. a minute. If you're reading through the Minor Prophets, the last 12 to 13 books of the Old Testament, there are some prophets who explain things in ways that are easy to understand. So we've done a couple of them. Habakkuk is fairly easy to understand. Jonah is easy to understand. We'll do Daniel at some point. The first half is easy to understand. The second half is not. Right. Haggai is one of those prophets who, for various reasons that we'll get into, is a little bit difficult to understand what he's saying. So to start, as we usually do with these books, I want to go over the background because this is based in historical events at the very end of the Old Testament. So walk us through a little bit of the history to get to the book of Haggai so that we know what's gone before and what it is that they're reacting to. Well, let's date it. Uh, by the way, Haggai can be dated very precisely because when you start reading, you'll realize that he dates his visions, his messages from the reign of Darius, the Persian king, and that is well attested outside the Bible. The book of Haggai records visions that were communicated between August and December of the year 520 B.C. So, what's going on in 520 B.C.? Let's back up, uh, and it's hard to know how far to back up, but let's start with the Babylonian Empire, in Mesopotamia, what's Iran and Iraq today, in 586 B.C., so 66 years earlier, had conquered the kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned the temple uh, of Jerusalem, and basically took most of the people into exile back to Babylon, near modern-day Baghdad, for example. That happened in 586. Well, Daniel was taken away, you know, Jeremiah was prophesying at this time, and they all talked about how God would bring you back, and he did. 
And so the Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Persians, Cyrus the Persian in 539 BC. So I think from 586 to 539, they're in exile. Well, the Persians had a little different view of how they wanted to rule their territories, and the Persian Empire became huge. And instead of the Babylonian method of exiling people, relocating mass populations, the Persian king Cyrus said, you know, you guys can all go live in your native lands. You can even worship your native gods. And I'm okay with that. As long as you continue to pay tribute and be loyal and pay your taxes, you can do that. So it was a radical change. So in 539, they conquered the Babylonians. And then in 538, the very next year, a group of Israelites, Jews, made their way back to Jerusalem under the head of a man named Zerubbabel and a high priest named Joshua. And they took some of the people back, began to resettle around Jerusalem. And one of the things they committed to do and began to do was to rebuild the temple so they could restart sacrifices and continue to worship God there. Well, as they started to rebuild it, they're also rebuilding their homes and their fields and other things. And so they basically languished in rebuilding the temple. And so in 520, Haggai, along with a contemporary, another minor prophet, Zechariah, come to the people with a word from God saying, hey, you committed to do this in 538. It's 18 years later and you still haven't finished the temple. And so Haggai has a message for God from them about rebuilding the temple. What would you add to the context of that? That's a great frame to set for this book. I think one of the things to remember is the the Old Testament is essentially two huge events that both start with E and actually both start with EX, which is really nice. You have the Exodus, which is really the beginning event in the history of Israel, Obviously, you have things before that, right? But it's the major event that that charts the course for the rest of the Old Testament. These, mm-hmm. The Exodus from Egypt, led by Moses, and then you have the exile, which right. takes place after the kingdom has disintegrated. Judah and Israel they've been conquered and they are split up across the world. Some of them actually stay. The nobles, as you mentioned, go to Babylon. They're spread all over the known world. And you get to the end of the exile, and sadly, as we mentioned before, this is where our his, our knowledge of history gets a little fuzzy in right. the biblical picture. And the reason is because the major history books of the Bible cover up to the exile. So if right. you think about First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you end with the exile. Right. However, and I think you can make this case. Almost all of the Old Testament is written with the exile as the focal point, not the exodus. The exodus is the backdrop of everything that happens. Right. But the exile is actually the focal point. So the history books and the prophets are all talking about the exile. So we think that 1 and 2 Samuel, for example, was probably written in various stages of mm-hmm. Samuel's life and then into first and second Kings probably compiled during the exile. So they mm-hmm. have an eye towards what's happening to us right now that we can make sense of through these historical documents. And then you have the prophets who are saying, Hey, if you don't change your ways, the exile's coming. And then the ones that watch the exile happen, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, right. this is what God promised would happen if we violated the covenant. 
Now all of a sudden you get this second wave of prophets who are prophesying after the exile about the rebuilding of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the book of Haggai. You see the last book in the New Te- in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, mm-hmm. has the exile in the background. But there are two historical books that talk about life after the exile, and they are involved with this book as well. So the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah talk about what it was like when the people go back from the exile. Right. And part of what we're going to see in the book of Haggai that, that Ezra especially describes is People didn't really want to go back from the exile. Right. They had gotten comfortable in their new life in the exile, even though it was only about 40 years. For a lot of people, it ended up being much longer than that. It was several generations right. of their family. So that by the time you get to the book of Nehemiah, it's been another 60 to 80 years beyond what we're talking about right now. That's right. So the first wave goes back. It doesn't go that well, as we're going to see in the book of Haggai. Uh-huh. And Nehemiah, who's of the next generation, or really probably the grandchildren of the generation right. in Haggai. About 450, 445 B.C. Yeah. His grandparents saw the edict of Cyrus. Right. And their grandparents saw the destruction of the temple. Right. So we're five generations maybe removed, and he is still working to rebuild the wall, to get the people back, to set up the system that God has intended for them to live in, in Jerusalem. And it's that system that really carries on for the next 400 years up to the time of Herod when we have the New Testament. So this is a quick and probably a, a little bit of a difficult to remember overview But this period of time is so important because it is the second major event of the Old Testament and because it is the backdrop for the New Testament. So in the same way that the Exodus is the backdrop for the Old Testament, the exile is really the the backdrop for the New Testament. Come back to the land, but the exile is still in their minds. Yeah, I think you, you really make a good point about the exile being a pivotal event because God prophesied that at the same time he's prophesying bringing the people back and this idea of exile coming back to God's promised land from exile is a theme that will show up in the ministry of Jesus the word repentance means to turn around or go back or change direction and with an exile you literally see people leaving where they are in Babylon and returning going back to the mm-hmm. to the land God gave them and so in some sense it's a little foreshadowing of the turning around in our heart that we do when we repent and mm-hmm. change direction that's exile is a is a key thing by the way for those of you interested in modern day Judaism the Orthodox Jewish rabbis today, now remember, they don't accept Jesus was the Messiah. Their writings today, 21st century, very much about believing that they're still in a state of exile, Mm -hmm. meaning, not so much meaning they can't go to Israel, since 1947 they can, but in a state of exile as in the Messiah hasn't come to gather all the people together. Now, we obviously know better, but exile still figures heavily in Orthodox Jewish teaching today. Mm -hmm. So who is Haggai is the next question. Who is he and what is he doing in this book? And like a lot of the minor prophets, we really don't know much about Haggai, although he is mentioned a couple other places in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Ezra chapters 5 and 6, 
and he's mentioned by contemporary Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 9. And there's two things that we know about him uh, that are important for us. We know the timing and the context, which we just went over. We know that he's prophesying in Jerusalem to the people who are part of that first wave who have returned. Um, And the second thing we know about him is he has been to prophet school. He knows the Torah, and he quotes from it. Hmm. So he refers to Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Leviticus, and Isaiah, all in the span of this two-page set of prophecies that he gives in Jerusalem. So he really knows his stuff. And that in and of itself is a significant detail in understanding Haggai because almost nothing in Haggai is new. Almost Mm -hmm. all of it is a reminder of things that the Israelites already know. And uh, that's part of the message of this book, is remembering the things that God has promised in the past, fulfilling them, and uh, we're going to see that the Israelites have a major apathy problem in, in Haggai. And the solution to that, at least the way that Haggai presents it, is to remember the promises of God, to obey them, and to trust God in the future. Right. So those are two things we know about Haggai. We know the timing and the context. We know that he knows the Bible and uh, the Hebrew Scriptures well. And the book itself is going to be four visions or four oracles that he gives to the people of Israel. The first one is all of chapter 1. And then chapter 2 is broken up into three separate words that he brings. Like you said, in the fall uh, or in the spring of 520. So let's kick off with the first one and, and give a little bit of an overview and you'll get a sense of what's going on in Israel. So in the second year of Darius the king, Haggai the prophet goes to Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel if you want and to the, the who's the governor and he's been charged with rebuilding the temple mm-hmm. and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, who's the priest. And he says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Hmm. So like we said, the situation is not going well here in (laughs) Jerusalem. The people go back. They have this huge expectation of the way that things are going to go. They're returning to the homeland. Uh God has been faithful. He's bringing them back. They get there, and things really don't pan out. That's exactly right. They have uh, obviously remember 18 years now by the 520. They've been here 18 years. They've started on it and uh, they've apparently managed to build themselves some nice houses in the suburbs and get things going, but their work has languished on the temple. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really an interesting thing. One of the things I think about is the irony of in, in history, people lived in small homes and worshiped in a beautiful temple. And in the Middle Ages, people lived in modest homes and worshiped at these big cathedrals. And now we live in big homes and worship in old Walmart buildings, uh-huh. you know? And so I'm not uh, trying to be, I just think it's funny that you, when you think about that, and I think it is a commentary on us a little bit, and that is that we are looking to our interests first. And I, this is how I read uh, God when he comes to them is, I notice you had time to build your nice house, but you said the time has not yet come 
to build mine. And he's saying, when will that time be? Mm-hmm. And then he asks them, I want you to stop, consider your ways. Stop and think about it. And I love that because it does say, stop and think about how faithful I've been and stop and think about how things are going for you. So uh, I think God challenges them in the, in their discouragement, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting phenomenon in the book of Haggai is that he is one of the few prophets whose words are actually obeyed. So you see right. a lot of prophets who come and they prophesy and nobody listens to them. You think of the entire ministry of Jeremiah. Right. He, for 40 years, he's prophesying that these people need to repent or they're going into exile. And sure enough, in the end, he only gets two converts. The nation goes into exile. <laughs> but Haggai, a lot like the, a lot like Jonah, preaches a message to the people, and they immediately repent. Mm-hmm. So after this first prophecy, he says, God is going to tell you why things are not going well. There's mm-hmm. the famine. There's the work that's been worthless on the temple. The problem is you haven't put the Lord first. You've put yourselves first, and so God is not blessing you. And this is not an endorsement of, of prosperity theology. This, this prophecy literally says, I sent you here to rebuild the temple. You have not rebuilt the temple. And now you're wondering why it seems like you're distant from God. In verse 9 of chapter 1, I love this phrasing, Cole. It's exactly what you're saying. God says to them, uh, this is in the ESV, You looked for much, but behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruin while each of you busies himself with his own house. Mm-hmm. So this message jumpstarts the work. And Zerubbabel, who's a great leader, and the high priest, Joshua, they have a surge of obedience in the people, and they mm-hmm. lead them to complete the temple. So in, in chapter 1, we realize that they've completed the work, and they, and they came together, and they worked, and in in, in in a short time, they finished the temple. So one of the things I really like about the book of Haggai is that it explores the religious psyche in a way that not many other books in the Bible do. What do you mean by that? So in the first place, you have a group of people who are second generation Jews Mm -hmm. after the exile. Mm -hmm. So their parents' generation were the ones who came and were really excited about rebuilding the temple. Mm-hmm. They inherited the failure and the disappointment and the lack of energy of what their parents had come back to do. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine over the course of 20 years, they come back, their parents come back, their children, now they're adults. And you got to think the life expectancy in, in you know, the 6th century B.C. is not that long. Right. So 20 years is half a lifespan. Right. And they are now adults. They're beginning to have children. And there's not a lot of excitement. The mm-hmm. air has been let out of the balloon. They don't have the motivation that their parents did. Mm-hmm. Some of them lived in exile, but many of them didn't. And uh, the, the leadership challenge for... Zerubbabel and Joshua is to motivate a second generation of people Mm. who didn't experience what their parents did. It's the same way in the wilderness period. You have the people who left Egypt and then you have their children who don't, they didn't see the same promises. They didn't see the plagues. They didn't see all of that. All they know is they're in the middle of the desert and God has told them to be there and they're going to have land at some point, but they don't have any of it now. Right. 
So one of the things that this prophecy does is, is, is it exposes, it names, but it also deals with the problem of religious apathy after a religious high. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you're always looking for how this matches up with the present moment. And I think this point has a lot of relevance for this moment in history. And and that would be, if you think about the last 30 or 40 years of the church, there's been a golden age of American Christianity. If you think about Billy Graham and the Crusades and lots of people coming to Christ, you have the rise of megachurches and denominations and political power and all of these things that have come about from, you know, the 50s until now. Mm -hmm. And now you have a group of people that are, number one, disillusioned with Christianity, Inc., Mm-hmm. They are suspicious of things like crusades. Right. You know, <laughs> um, obviously we have all kinds of interlocking um, difficulties with the broader world, with things like the exclusive claim on truth, mm-hmm. or uh, just religious teachings on things like sexuality and gender and all that. So you have a disillusionment among a younger generation of people who saw. An excitement. Now, maybe it was a misguided excitement uh-huh. in their parents' generation, but a, a, a growth and excitement and victory nonetheless. And you have people thinking to themselves, what now? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we do now? And that's basically where the Israelites find themselves at the beginning of chapter two. They finish the temple, but they look around and the people that had seen the previous demo, these people are old, okay? This is, you got to be pretty old to have seen this. Right. Uh, to see the temple before it was destroyed and to see this new one, you need to be upwards of 70, 75 years old. And they, those people are like, yeah, well, I saw the old temple and this new temple. Let me it's, tell you, it yeah. it is lacking. Mm-hmm. And that's where we start chapter two. Right. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? The answer to that rhetorical question is it's pretty shabby and pathetic. Right. Is it not nothing to your eyes? Yet be strong, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, mm-hmm. declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So if if that's the problem, and this is where the, the people find themselves, why do you think God answers that question the way that he does? Yeah, that's a really good point you've queued up there is I'm when I see that be strong be strong be strong work for I am with you uh, my spirit remains in your midst fear not I'm just really reminded of Joshua as they are beginning to go into you know Moses passes away hands off the leadership to Joshua they're ready to go into the promised land and uh, it's not exactly what they thought they were hoping for just a little cakewalk, you know, just walk in and here it is already. And instead they have a challenge in front of them. And I just am reminded that God says, be strong, be strong. Don't be afraid to Joshua as he's Mm -hmm. on the verge. And then I look down a little further in chapter two, down in verse uh, seven and nine, I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. Mm -hmm. God, you know, it's almost as in every generation, God says, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. 
don't be complacent because I have great things to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if God is reminding them. And I I really do think, like I said, I think this this investigates the the psyche of a believer. Now, we've got Mm -hmm. Jews of the Old Testament, cultural considerations there. We've got Christians in the New Testament. But one of the things that you noticed in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the post-exile prophets, Mm -hmm. is a really strong emphasis on the Spirit of God. It almost reads like the New Testament. Right. And you don't see that anywhere else in the Old Testament. You see the Spirit of God coming on the prophets in First and Second Kings. You see it in Judges. But you don't see this same sense that the Spirit of God is going to be the thing that does the work. Right. And in Haggai, God promises His presence to the people through his spirit. And it's almost as if he's reminding them, look, the externality of the temple was never the point. Right. They built it in the they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, they built the temple in Jerusalem the way that God had designed it, but the the crowning moment in both of those places was that the glory of the Lord descended and dwelled in the temple. That was the point. Mm-hmm. Was that God would be their God and they would be his people. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The promise of Abraham right. is not, you will have a beautiful temple. Right. The promise of Abraham is, you will be with God. And the amazing thing is, that's really the promise of the New Testament, is what the cross and the resurrection of Christ guaranteed, what they won for humanity, is reconciliation with God, being with Him, Him being present with us now and forever into the future. So this is a New Testament kind of hope that Mm -hmm. that they're getting here. God says, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will fill this temple. But the most valuable thing that I'll fill it with is my own glory. Right. One of the most tragic scenes in the Old Testament is in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, what happens is that the exile has happened. He's among the exiles, and he sees the Spirit of the Lord, and he sees a a re like a, a rehappening of the Spirit departing from the temple. And that is God and His Spirit leaving the physical place of mm-hmm. the temple. And it's symbolic of Him removing His covenant um, blessings from the people of Israel because of their disobedience. Mm-hmm. So the people of Israel break the covenant, God punishes them, and yet He's still faithful to send the Messiah right. later. But here we see one of the antidotes to apathy is a reminder that it's not about the stuff. It's not about the big temple. It's not about the kingdom. It's not about any of those things. It's getting to be with God, God being present with his people. And in that case, there is no such thing as a second-generation Jew. There is no such thing as a second-generation Christian Christian. because you don't get hand-me-downs from your parents from the previous generation. You get the presence of God now. That's what God promises. And then, too, he promises that he's going to provide for these people. He's going mm-hmm. to provide for the temple. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to provide leadership through um, Zerubbabel. That's what the next two prophecies are really about, is strengthening the leadership that he's provided for them. But the message at this point in the first two prophecies, really, and, and, and especially in the fourth, is that God is going to remedy their situation by being present, even if things don't mm-hmm. look the way they want them to externally. Right. 
And that, that again, is a recurring promise to Moses, to Joshua, to David is, I will be with you. That is Jesus' uh, last part of the Great Commission, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. It's the presence of God that is the the great value to us. It is not the external mm-hmm. trappings. And I think that's something good to remember today in a time when churches are, in many places, aren't allowed to meet, where churches are closing in some places. You look at Europe and you see the beautiful cathedrals, and they're now museums instead of worship. And you think to yourself, oh, no, I'm discouraged because things aren't going very well. And then you remember it's never been about the buildings. It's Mm -hmm. never been about the externalities. Right. The last part of this that I want to deal with is is chapter 2, 10 through 19. So like we said, verses 20 through 23, the end of the book, is a promise about um, Zerubbabel's leadership. But before we get to that, the third prophecy that Haggai gives is very difficult to understand. And uh, we definitely can't do it justice here in the next few minutes, but it's one where he's quoting from Leviticus. And, and in fact, he's quoting from a very obscure passage in Leviticus about touching and clean and unclean objects and what makes something holy. And, and I, I want to say this, this passage is hard to understand because we don't share the details. But we do see a fulfillment of this prophecy in the New Testament. So one of the things he says is, he says, Okay, Haggai, I want you to go and I want you to ask them, Thus says the Lord, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his uh, fold bread or stew or wine or oil, does it become holy? And the priests answer, No. So then Haggai says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does he be, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Here's the interesting point. If you have a holy object and you touch it with something that is not holy, the object does not become holy. Right. And if anything you see in the Old Testament, the holy object can become defiled. Mm-hmm. If you have something that is unclean and it touches something that's not unclean, the unclean object does not become clean. The clean object becomes unclean. Right. So there is a spiritual clean-unclean degeneracy that happens. Mm -hmm. There is a spiritual entropy that goes on in the Mosaic system. Things do not go from unclean to clean. Things do not go from unholy to holy. Things go from holy to unholy. They go from clean to unclean. Mm-hmm. So contact always makes things go down on the totem pole right. from holy to unholy. The amazing thing in the New Testament that we see this a fulfillment of this, or it's a reversal of this, is that when Jesus touches someone who's unclean, not only does he not become unclean, the unclean person becomes clean. The leper, for example. Jesus touches the leper. Or the woman who reaches the out woman. and touches yes, his garment. Absolutely. He should have become unclean at that point. Right. But Jesus reverses this because he is truly holy. It is contact with the divine. And one of the things that God is saying in this passage is, so you on your own terms as a human being, as a sinful human being, can never make something holy or clean. You can do it through ritual sacrifice, by the shedding of blood. God deems things clean and holy. But as a human being, you can never create that on your own. Mm -hmm. 
And he's talking about building the temple. So he, he reminds them, everything was going poorly. Everything was degenerating spiritually. And mm-hmm. only when I act are things going to start going well. So in this case specifically, only when I act is and, and, and you begin to build the temple are things going to turn around. Seed in the barn, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing on this point. But once you start building this, I will act and I will make that happen. It's a reminder that all gifts are from God. Mm-hmm. So on our own merit as human beings, we actually cannot produce anything clean and holy. It's only through the work of God. It's only through our relationship with Christ. It's only through the work of the Spirit that we are capable of doing anything. The same spiritual entropy happens in our lives now as if if we're talking about non-believers or if we're talking about Christians who are not abiding by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, we actually cannot produce anything that is holy or pleasing to God. So in the New Testament, you see, without faith, it is impossible to please right. God. So it's a nice limit on what we think we can accomplish by our own strength. Mm-hmm. And that's really what they had been trying to do. They come, they're commanded to build the temple, they decide, you know what, actually... We're going to build our own houses uh, because we're God's people. And God reminds them, nothing that you're doing is working. Right. It's a great reminder in the Christian life of nothing that you do on your own is ever going to amount to anything before God unless it's done for God, by His Spirit, because of your relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. So this is an obscure passage. I'm not saying yeah. this is the only thing that this passage means, but it's a good reminder of how Christ reverses that in the New Testament. He's the only thing that can make us clean, the only thing that can make us holy. And he does that in the New Testament. Right. I mean, if you needed another reason to not follow a works-based theology, this is another one. And honestly, I would say that a lot of things, we just look for a verse. Is What's the answer? The answer is found through the text of the Bible. You'll see this message echoed over and over, all through history, all in different places, that you're, you're right. Only when God acts do things get healed, redeemed, made holy. God is the, is the healer, the essential healer. You know, uh, were you going to talk about Zerubbabel as a, kind of a precursor of Jesus? No, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying Zerubbabel, you know, he ends with, and, and it's just interesting that Zerubbabel is the one that leads them back. And when you go to Matthew, you'll see Zerubbabel there in the lineage of Jesus. And so it kind of ties us in your thinking, well, who is this Zerubbabel guy? Was he just like an MIT graduate or did he go to the Sloan School of Business and he was the, the hard charger and took him back? No, it's, you see God's hand, even in the subtle ways that Zerubbabel who led them back from his line. Mm-hmm. will come the Messiah, who will ultimately do, in a cosmic sense, what Zerubbabel is doing in this small physical sense. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great messages in this book. I hope mm-hmm. you're encouraged to read it after this. Don't be surprised when you read it to find out this is a difficult book. Right. And uh, there's a lot of meaning in it. There, it th- there's a lot of great implications from it. But I would say to, to, to wrap it up and to conclude, the major point of this book is twofold. First, this is an extremely important time in Israelite history. This is post-exile. This is setting the stage for what was going to happen 500 years later, mm-hmm. the coming of Christ, the rebuilding of the temple. It does end up being more glorious 
than right. the old temple. The That's temple right. of Herod blows the old one out of the water. Right. And uh, secondly, that the only cure for spiritual apathy, the only way for people to become right with God again, is for God to be present and active. The promise that God gives is not God's stuff. It is mm-hmm. God. And God reminds the Israelites of that, and Haggai here reminds us of that in the New Testament. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.